Your move, creep. Mission luck, Bruiser. You both in Coco. Dino DNA. Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. It's the only thing I know how to do. It's a good looking boy. I'm a member of the Imperial Senate. That's right, Lord! Welcome to Earth. You crossed the line. You know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Retrograde Podcast. This is the podcast where we talk about older movies. We talk about how they were made, how they were received, and whether or not they hold up. I am Austin. And I'm George. Okay, so last episode, part one, right? We talked about The Godfather, part one. So it's technically The Godfather, part one, part one, right? And now, uh-huh. and now this week, this is The Godfather, part one, part two. If that makes sense. Well, if you notice, on our last episode, we didn't talk much about the behind the scenes stuff. But because this is such a huge movie and it is the first time I watched it, I feel like there was a lot of stuff that we need to talk about. The actual movie movie. So we we uh, split up the recording sessions so that this time we're going to be talking about how this movie was made. Yeah, it's apparently I don't know. I didn't know too much about it, but it's crazy enough that they're making a miniseries based off the making of this film called the offer that's uh launching on mm-hmm. paramount plus uh in april and oh wow along it's competing with halo huh mm-hmm. <laughs> i wonder which one's gonna win <laughs> no but um uh, it's this is a really interesting story they released a teaser trailer a while ago they actually released the trailer today as of recording did you oh, wow did you see it i did not see it no yeah and like why are they making this a show? How crazy can the making of this movie be? Like, what's what's going to be the theme? What's the point? You know, I mean, you know, there are behind the scene movies like Apocalypse Now has one. Right. It's called The Heart of Darkness, which is about the making of Apocalypse Now. That's great. You know, but that's a documentary film. Why? Why do we need a limited series? Like it doesn't. I, I didn't know. So we started looking into it. And holy shit, is this story crazy? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of It's crazy on multiple fronts, yeah. Yeah, and it's really funny and dumb simultaneously. I can't wait to talk mm-hmm. about it. How do you want to start talking about it? Yeah, well, so if you guys haven't, if you haven't heard the first part, definitely recommend you checking it out. Uh, if you haven't seen the movie, go watch it. Austin and I recommend it. Great film. One of the greatest by many critics and stuff. So go watch it uh, and you'll appreciate this story a lot more. So let's start at the very beginning uh, okay. And then we'll just kind of gloss o- or talk about the things that have happened throughout. Because my notes are yes. chronological, right? Okay, perfect. Because my notes are not. I know very specific things or very specific points in the production that may or may have not happened. Because <laughs> one of my sources is, I don't know, he just, he talks so much and the things that he says are like, wait, is this true? <laughs> <You know? laughs> well, okay, so... Yeah, let's go about it that way. And let's start with the fact that this book was written by Mario Puzo. He had a book previously called The Fortunate Pilgrim, which was about kind of his mother and her story of immigration to America, right? And how because of her, his family got through the Great Depression and kind of America. You know, it's like that American immigration story, right? And, you know, that was apparently it was a great book. But not successful. Apparently, there was a documentary that said that only three people read it, which is obviously an exaggeration. But, yeah, <laughs> it, I mean, nobody read the book. However, 
Mario Puzo found that there was some interest in one of the characters, like a side character in the film or in the in the story. And so then he kind of decided to kind of take that character and kind of see where he could take him. And that's when he created the Godfather. Right. And the character that inspired it was that or the character that was written in the Fortunate Pilgrim would later become would later become. Vito Corleone, which kind of makes sense because in Godfather Part Two, it re- it's a flashback to Vito Corleone and kind of his rise to power in mm-hmm. like early, early America, right? So it makes it checks out. Mario was like apparently a degenerate gambler, or not a degenerate, but he was like a huge gambler, and he mm-hmm. didn't know that much about maf- about the mafia. He had no clue about the mafia, so he went to Vegas where he'd meet up with a bunch of a bunch of mafiosos and would gamble. And apparently Vegas was like the scene to be if you were in the mafia, which oh comes into God. the film. So he was he was gambling with with mafia members. Yeah. Jesus Christ. Dude. Yeah. But I mean, hey, I mean, the research checks out because, you know, we got this book. So, you know, at his own peril, he did it and it worked <laughs> out. So but yeah, I thought it was really interesting because that also comes into the Godfather because there's that scene where Al Pacino, uh, where uh, Michael goes to Vegas to deal with Mo Green, right? Mm-hmm. So we, that checks out as well. But apparently Paramount had bought the rights when there was only like a page, a 20-page outline of the book, which is insane. And it's funny when you think about it because they had gone through an unsuccessful period. A lot of studios were struggling at this time. The doc that I was watching was saying how studios really weren't sure what audiences were looking for. Right. It, it's a weird thing where it kind of resembles now. It seems like there was yeah. like a difference in audience, like what they wanted. Right. And what they desired. Mm. And it's competing with television. Right. Exactly. Like, I go to the theaters if you can watch stuff at home. Bada bing. To quote Sonny. But yeah, I mean, he I mean, TV had taken a lot of movie theaters thunder and studios weren't sure what audiences wanted to make. And they were doing like experimentation too, like with 3D movies and uh, widescreen movies and stuff, like things that you couldn't get at home. Exactly. Well, to lure people back in. But it was so strange to hear that Paramount had bought the rights to this book even before it was completed because they had made another mafia film called The Brotherhood that was a box office bomb. And because of mm-hmm. that, and like they had other, um, they had other films that were taking up like big box office. Like, t- that were taking up big budgets, right? So Paramount wasn't really in a position to put a whole lot of money and support into this film. In fact, they were just constantly trying to change the way they made this film, right? They were trying to make it on the cheap. The original budget was two to three million bucks. Studios at the time had were making films around like 20, 15 to 20 million, or even more than that. So f- to go from that to two to three million, it's insane. They, they had no faith in this. They wanted to, but a lot of big movies weren't doing very well, right? No, they were not. This was the beginning of the decade, the seventies, and movie theaters were not doing well. I I read that nineteen seventy one was the lowest box office turnout since the pan since the pandemic. Jesus Christ! (laughs) Well, it was bad, and it just a surprising move because I'm like, okay, so you guys bought an outline for a book that isn't finished about a mafia, even though you just had a mafia film that underperformed. And you guys want to change a bunch of the core aspects of it? Like, they didn't want the film set in the 40s. They wanted it set contemporary times in the 70s. To, to save on the budget. To save on the budget. They also didn't want to film in New York. They wanted to film everything in studios, right? Because uh, So they're trying to make an old old mafia movie. Exactly. They 
They Jesus they Christ. said we and everything needs to be in studios. You can't film in New York because it's notoriously expensive to film there. Uh, there was like no, they were, they were trying to make this movie on the cheap, and you know they and they hired Francis Ford Coppola because he was cheap and he was relatively new, and Francis had some debts to pay, so he was like, <laughs> "Fuck it, I'll do it." it. Yeah, he started he started a studio or something. Was it a studio? He started something with George Lucas. Well, it, I think it was like time. a film collective, American Zoetrope, I believe. Uh huh. George Lucas was in it. I believe it was American Zoetrope. I don't know if that's the studio or. But I, I know there was like a collective of young filmmakers who wanted to push the envelope, you know? But yeah, I mean, and it's funny because Francis always, he always seemed like the guy that wanted to do artsy films, but he always got stuck doing studio stuff. I mean, he got stuck doing three Godfather films, Apocalypse Now, you know, it's like he definitely seemed like he was more interested in like smaller more intimate artistic films and yet he directed the godfather which would go on to be one of the biggest one of the highest grossing films of that year so he came on and he was like no we can't film in studios we can't film in the lot we have to film in new york um the production designer threatened to like have to lift all the student like the lot the actual like lots they'd have to like lift them you know like inc- like make them larger taller in order to try oh, to recreate okay. the New York metropolitan feel. And the studio was like, mm. fuck no. Like, like, think, like, like for people who are confused, think of the actual lots, like the studio lots that you see in pictures of studios and stuff. Now imagine having to raise that. Like, that's fucking difficult. I went on the Warner Brothers this tour a few day, a few, like, oh, like a week ago or two. And they talked about how one of the lots had to be like, one of the studios had to be like lifted and how crazy expensive it was. <laughs> So the production designer is telling them it's not going to be cheap by filming it in the studios. It's going to look bad. You have the director who says, hey, we got to film in New York. And the studio's like, all right, fine. Film the fucking thing in New York. But there was a problem with filming in New York, wasn't there? Ooh, <laughs> man. So Fuck. there haven't been like, there were some mob movies back in the 30s before the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code, if, if you're not into like film history, is like, this period of time when people decided there needs to be morals in these movies. There needs to be a moral tale. If you have a gangster in a the movie, they have to be punished by law. You know, like they have to 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 be arrested or killed or something, right? Mm-hmm. There were some mob movies before this that were popular, like the original Scarface, right? Mm-hmm. And then the production code happened, and then the mob movies are just like, look at these bad men. Don't be like these bad men. Yeah. <laughs> like cautionary um, tales. Yes. For a while, audiences were obsessed with mob films, right? Yeah. And then they get like kind of neutered and people are not as interested in them again. Also, the the real mob mob people, you know, they're they're making moves. They're getting they're getting stronger. And one of them, uh, the head of the Colombo family, Joseph Colombo, uh started an Italian-American Civil Rights League, a political ad- advocacy group created to, like, uh, defend Ita- portrayals of uh, Italian-Americans. Yeah, because it, the consensus was that, especially back then, if you were Italian, you were associated with the mob. Like, that was just kind of... Mm-hmm. I'm guessing that was, like, what the... That's what people thought of if you were Italian, right? And this yeah. was kind of meant to protect the portrayals of Italian-Americans and say, no, we're not mobs run by the head of a mob family which is which is where the which is where the hypocrisy and the stupidity comes in but you know i mean and this, he was just 
the head of one family, right? Yes. Joseph Colombo. And he kind of got to power because he killed somebody else. And then he, I guess he gained favor. Or he had someone else killed and then he gained favor. And now he's like the head of this very public civil rights organization. And then other, the other families are like, what the fuck are you doing, dude? You can't be getting, you can't be getting pictures of you taken. You can't be being a, pu- a public figure. But he didn't care. <laughs> no, no, he he did it, man. It's hilarious. This, 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 this is so dumb, but it's really fascinating. <laughs> so okay, yeah, well, he, they would they would boycott stuff. They organized a boycott. Thousands of people in front of the FBI building. They boycotted Ford Ford Motor Company because they sponsored the FBI show that had negative negative representations of Italian Americans as gangsters. And they went after the Godfather. Yeah. Oh, kind of hard. They, oh <laughs> man, I was gonna say they went full force. They fucking hated that movie. <laughs> which, which on some level I understand, but on some other level I'm like, just, just, no, just stop. I, <laughs> it's, it's like, like I understand. Like you don't want your your my your people being portrayed negatively and only being portrayed negatively right Mm -hmm. i understand that yes but you are the guy that they're making the movie about you know what i mean that's (laughs) what's so stupid about this it's like italian americans are not like this hey yo sonny kill that motherfucker (laughs) ice him oh my god luca brassi swimming with the fishes yo Okay, now I'm doing a whole it's different. Not, what the I don't fuck, know. dude? That's not how they talk, I don't, dude. I don't know, man. It's I'm, I have no no gauge as to what that was going for, but no. But seriously, though, I mean that's that is what happened. Joe Colombo Joseph was the head of the Italian American Civil Rights League, and he put a target on this movie. Not like literally, or well, I mean. As far as I know, there wasn't a hit, but they definitely made sure to target the filmmakers. Like, there's yes. they, they went after um, they went after Albert Rudy, who was the producer, young hotshot, you know, or young producer who wanted to make a big splash. Albert Rudy was the producer. Is the it film. Rudy or Ruddy? Ruddy. I'm sorry, Ruddy. And then his uh, executive assistant Betty McCart, I believe. Terrible names, but uh, Betty McCart and Robert Evans and his wife. So the mob didn't put out a hit as far as I know, but they were like, we are going to send death threats. We're going to have you followed. I think Albert and Betty like switched cars one night. He was like, hey, let's just switch cars because I think I haven't. I think I'm being followed, but I just need to know. She drove his car to her place. And when she woke up, like the windows were broken and they had a sign. They had a piece of paper saying, don't make the Godfather. So it's not really a hit, but it's definitely like, yo, scare the fuck out of these people. And yeah, if you're just like, I'm working in movies. Wait, people are threatening to kill me for making this movie? What the fuck did I sign up for? Oh, yeah, they all got death threats. And it got even worse. Um, they, they they held like a rally on June 11th where like, you know, they, they was the Italian American Society. And they were like hundreds, uh, like I think a quarter of a million people went protesting the making of this film in New York back in hollywood they're trying to get this film made and at the same time like they're already running to production issues because they're like you need a film here you can't film it this much and blah 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 blah. francis ford coppola the director of the film is already fighting with the studio on top of the producers and everyone involved getting death threats from the fucking mob what the fuck 
<laughs> and that's that's just the beginning. That didn't even film yet. <laughs> they haven't even filmed a frame of this. Did you did you see the part where they had a a production van stolen, production truck stolen? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think you and I watched the same doc. I I heard about this. Oh, from, okay. Uh, an, another person. Okay, yeah, uh, they. What? Francis, I guess, had gone to New York to do to run some tests, and I guess he had a van, and it got stolen. Like when he came back out, it was gone. <laughs> What the fuck? So eventually they moved production to New York, the studio caves. And they're like, all right, you guys can film in New York. And, you know, Francis is doing a bunch of test stuff. He gets his van stolen. They're working out of the offices of Gulf and Western, out of the Gulf and Western building, which is the parent company to Paramount. And that building is getting mm-hmm. bomb threats. Not officially the society, but obviously from the mob. Yeah, it's like, you know, you're being told by this very public group, don't make this movie. And then you're getting bomb threats? Yeah. And one plus one equals two, motherfucker. (laughs) I believe the Paramount like the studio in Par the the Paramount studio in LA had its doors blown up or something. (gasps) Oh, I didn't hear about that. I heard about that from Johnny Russo, who plays Carlo Carlo in The Godfather. Oh he has a lot of stories about this. Well, he's from the fucking mob. He was in it. Yeah, he he was an, an errand boy for Frank Costello. He he says that he never joined the mob, but he did he did stuff for that man. He knew all the guys. Yeah. <laughs> um but, but like he's he's the guy that's like, I don't is he is he for real? Like The Godfather is his first movie, so like that's real. Yeah. And he kinda he's he kind of like in his story he finessed his way into the movie yeah. by organizing a meeting between the Italian American um, Civil Rights League and the producers for the film. Well, okay. See, I don't know about that because I just, from what I heard, I just heard that Al Ruddy just set up a meeting with Joe Car- Carlumbo. I don't know that Carlo was the one that set it up. I don't know about all that. I mean, maybe yeah, that's that's the thing. Like, I'm like, it sounds like he's because in his own story, he's saying like, "Hey, I want to be in this movie, and I know you're having problems with the Italian League. I can help." And they're like, how can you help? And he's like, I know some guys. And in his story, he says, I didn't know any guys. I was just bullshitting so that I can get in this movie. <laughs> so so then jo- Johnny Russo goes to the league and he says, hey, I, I think the, the movie producers want to make a deal with you so that they can get this Godfather movie made. You can we can go over the script and you can make any changes you want so that it's we're all good. Well, well, well real quick, I mean. Things were getting really bad before this meeting. And I don't know if he's the one that set it up, but just to paint people a picture of what was happening, right? The building where they're working out of is getting bomb threats. And these bomb threats are very legitimate because at this time, there were a lot of bomb threats uh, because people because the Black Panther movement was very active, right? And there were some people that were being arrested uh, who ha- who were suspicious of, who people felt they were suspicious of bomb threats. So there was, there was a real... The mo- it felt like the mob wanted to use the threat of bomb threats that were very real at the time to kind of they wanted to leverage that into their into what they wanted as well, right? So they were like, mm-hmm. well, if these guys are doing it, we'll just say that we are sending bomb threats and they'll be scared because they're actual bombs that are going off. So mm-hmm. that's fucked up. And the mob was really putting pressure on not just the producers but on local businesses as well, as well, because Francis wanted to film in Little Italy, right? But oh yeah. They, but the mob was saying no. Don't allow them or you're going to run into problems. And what what they would do is, hey, look, let the producers and the filmmakers know that you don't that you're not going to allow them here by putting the sticker on your window. However, the mob decided and found that, oh, we can make money off of this. So they sold the sticker to local businesses 
right? And those businesses will put the sticker up to let the producers know, don't come here, you're not filming here. So the plan to film in Little Italy was out while the mob is profit- profiting from these businesses. There was like, It was like a sense of intimidation, right? Yeah. <laughs> and, and there was also the threat because the mafia had a lot of resources in the labor unions, right? There were mm-hmm. like food trucks, truckers, delivery guys. Like we could send we could send the unions on strike to fuck you up. That's insane. Like to oh, yeah. to, to get a union against one film to go on strike over one film? Oh my god. So so that's when so that's when we get to your point where either through Al or Johnny they set up this meeting with Columbo. And then in the the meeting with Columbo, he goes over the script and he's like I don't want any references to the word mafia in your mafia movie. <laughs> any references to the word mafia or Cosa Nostro, which I believe translates to like our thing in uh, Sicilian or Italian. And I think they wanted to remove certain slurs from the movie as well. Mm-hmm. But if, as we know, as we've seen in the movie, they kind of use those slurs quite a bit Oh yeah, uh, in certain parts of the movie. So I'm not sure if that was true or oh, there's there's one other thing that they wanted to do. They wanted to get a piece of the gross, the the first day gross, the first I think what do they call it? First dollar gross of the movie. Opening day gross. OK. Opening day gross. They, want, they wanted money from the movie. Mm. And apparently they agreed to all these terms. Right. Yeah. They and they were like the producers like we'll get the we'll get rid of the word mafia, which. So here's the thing at the meeting. <laughs> Al was like, look, read the script. And whatever words you want out, we'll take out. No worries. And apparently, Columbo just didn't have it in him to read the script. So he passed it to someone else. That person passed it to someone else. They, they, they didn't finish reading the script. And Columbo's like, fine. Look, you, you seem like a cool guy. Make your film. But get rid of anything that mentions Mafia or Cosa... What is it? Cosa Nostra. Yeah. Which apparently, the script at the time, which was 150 pages, only said the word Mafia once. One time. And that was with Jack Wolf <laughs> insulting Tom Higgins, you know, in the scene at the studio. I'm not going to have oh, yeah. some some Guinea mafioso walking around telling me what to do. And that's when Tom's like, I'm German Irish. And he's like, yeah. oh, excuse me. Let me correct my slurs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which is such a thick <laughs> thing to say, but it's funny. Uh, but it's uh, so, yeah, that was the only mention of it. I'm like, this dude got. Tripped all over a few things that weren't even originally in the script. That was, it was insane. But apparently this would go on to cause another issue. This meeting. Because Columbo, essentially Columbo, right? Who was being investigated, who had ties to the mafia, had made a deal with a major Hollywood studio. Not technically. I mean, technically, because Al Ruddy was making a film for Paramount Studios. Columbo set up a press conference, right, where he wanted Al to kind of explain the deal. Or Columbo got Anthony, I guess his nephew or son or something like that, to, and Albert there to, so they could get the press and say, hey, this is the deal that we've struck. Everything's good. And apparently, like, ABC, all these major news outlets were there. And they kind of read between the lines, and then were like, they asked Al, like, hey, so did a major Hollywood studio just make a deal with the mafia? <laughs> and that set off an even bigger bomb. Because think about that. Like, think about it from today's point of view. Warner Brothers made a deal with the New York Mafia to, to make the next Batman film. What the fuck? Well, 
there was a an article that I found from 1971 about this about this uh, incident. The title of the article was "Godfather Film Won't Mention Mafia." <laughs> I saw that, uh, and they don't say. Well, I guess they do say. They say. Mr. Ruddy announced the changes at a news conference yesterday in the office of the league at 635 Madison Avenue. He said the changes had come out of several meetings with league representatives, including Anthony Colombo, whose father, Joseph Colombo Sr., is a reputed leader of organized crime in Brooklyn. That's wild. <laughs> and, and here's the thing. People saw that. News outlets ran with that story. And it fucked Gulf and Western up. They lost billions in stock. The head of the co- the head of the company, Charles Bloodorn, was pissed, and he straight up fired Albert. He was like, "I'm not letting like I, take everything that man has said and wash it away." Like he, that man does not exist in Paramount. And they fired Albert, the guy who was successfully navigating all these deals and trying to just make this movie made, he doing was, his job, doing his job, and doing it. As safely as possible, and I mean, major major news outlets made it seem like the the the, the studio was taking money from these mobs. They just agreed to get take a few words off, technically one word. That's what the the article says, right? They were sensationalizing but, it. Alleg- yeah, allegedly, they also agreed to give them a piece of the opening day gross as well. Yeah. So I'm the the head of the studio or the head of the company of Gulf and Western fired albert and from what i saw francis apparently went to bat for albert and he's like no you if you want to get this film made if you want to get it done like this and in on the cheap and if you wanted to come out right you gotta hire albert and albert met up with charles and charles 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 yeah blood bloodborn oh okay the, the, head of, the head of paramount no no the head of gulf and western gulf and western is the oh, parent company gulf and we- okay okay I so Charles is not the Charles is like the owner of Paramount Studios, but he's not like the president. He's the head of Gulf and Western, right? Mm-hmm. Um, parent company, and apparently he like you know I I don't know what Francis said. Apparently there's other stories of some other people who persuaded Charles, but eventually Charles gave caved in and hired rehired Albert. So yeah, because like those those idiots up there don't know what what work needs to be done. You know what I mean? Well, it's. It's funny because this story really highlights how little a top level people understand about how to make a movie and also just artistically what goes behind making a movie. Because throughout the whole making of this film, Francis is battling the studio in every major decision. Where are they shooting the film? How are they going to shoot the film? Who's going to be acting in it? Right? They didn't want Marlon Brando in the film. They didn't want Al Pacino. They didn't want it shot in New York. They wanted it in studios. They wanted it nicely lit. Bright lights and everything. It's like every decision oh, was just ass backwards. And like those are the the decisions that, you know, kind of led movies into the way that they were. You know, like the, the reason movies were people weren't going to the movies was because of the TV. But also, you know, maybe maybe movies just weren't artistic. Like they weren't taking you somewhere new. They were kind of set in the way that they were always done. Yeah, that makes sense. They made a bunch of decisions to try to just cheapen the production of the film, like financially. I mean, again, they wanted it in studios because it's cheaper, and they wanted the film set in the seventies, not in the original time period that the film was that the film or that the book was based on, because it was just too expensive. The film that they would have wanted to make 
would have been completely different and I don't think as highly regarded as the one that we got, right? It's tough, Absolutely it's tough to yeah. say, but I'm willing to bet that's that's right. But thank God that they got their marbles straight, or whatever the fuck the saying is, and they hired Albert again. Because Albert really yeah. does seem like the guy who's just trying to hold the ball together. Uh, he's, trying to, he's trying to... He's pe- trying Very hard to make this movie. I, I believe Ooh. Francis Ford Coppola didn't even want to do this movie. No, in, he in didn't. In the first place. No, he didn't. He... He didn't want. He did it out of a financial debt, out of a financial obligation. So it, but Albert wanted to do it. But Francis brought him back, and now they're actually like, you know, filming. They're actually filming, uh, but they're still dealing with issues. I mean, again, the studio didn't want. I mean, the the studio was seeing the Russians. You know, they were seeing like what was being shot the day of, and they didn't like what they were seeing. They said the film's too dark. They said that it was mm-hmm. lit with a cigarette lighter lit by Gordon Williams, right? Who who needed to film Marlon Brando from the top, like from with top lighting, right? The lights directly overhead because they needed to conceal like the make the makeup, right? The heavy makeup that Marlon had. And they decided to keep that throughout the film. Studio didn't like it. Oh, it's too dark. Studio didn't want Marlon Brando. They're like, he's a pain in the ass. We don't want to do it. Eh, he's, you know. Francis actually shot some test screens with with Marlon Brando and Marlon kind of like created the character in that moment. You know, he got some shoe polish, pulled his hair back. He, he actually put the cotton, he put cotton in his mouth to kind of make, make Vito look like a bulldog. <laughs> I always thought mm-hmm. that was bullshit, but apparently for these test screenings, he did it. And what's really interesting is that this story resembles kind of, I mean, we mentioned it in the first part, but like kind of what Heat Ledger did with the Joker, like Nolan yeah. was like, Hey, do, you know, do your own makeup, kind of create the character. And, Heath Ledger, like, had a journal that he was writing in character. He did his own makeup, and that's kind of how they went about it. And um, he really let the character be his own. Marlon did the same thing, you know, with the shoe polish and the, the, the you know, with the pro- the mouth prosthetic. And it worked because the studio's like, all right, he could be in it. They didn't want Al Pacino, though. They said that he Why was, didn't they want that? Well, they said that he was short, unknown, and low-key. Jesus Christ. They are like, he's an unknown actor. Unknown actor. And dude, it is trippy because Francis always wanted out. But at the studio's insistence, they had a bunch of screen tests with other other actors. They even had James Caan read for the part of Michael. No way. There's a a clip of James Caan and Diane Keaton talking about uh, the Luca Brasi story from The Wedding. I can't imagine him saying, that's not me. One night I got a call from Francis. He was in New York and he said, uh, Jimmy, and I could tell from his voice, this was not his idea. Jimmy, uh, uh, why don't you come in and test? I said, test what? What, do you got a Porsche you want me to drive around the block? What do you want? Test what? He said, please, uh, they want you to play Michael. Why? Please. So I went in. 168. Michael, hmm? why are those people bothering your father on a day like this? Huh? Well, that's because they know no Sicilian can refuse a request on his daughter's wedding day. Oh, good. <laughs> okay, I'll say this. Look, I still love Al Pacino as Michael. I think he was the best decision, one of the best casting decisions in the film. James Conn did a pretty good job. <laughs> mm. He did a pretty good job. And they even had they even had Robert De Niro read for Sonny. Oh, wow. Yeah. And I saw the tape and it looks really good. <laughs> dude i the casting was a fucking 
nightmare process in this film because you had so many talented actors and the studio wasn't happy with who they wanted but francis he fought and he got al pacino the part but they were like we don't like this guy and the studio wasn't convinced that al pacino was the right guy until michael kills lotso that was the moment when they're like all right he's a decent michael or they they like they like them right mm-hmm. and i'm just like at every decision that you guys hate at first francis proves you wrong the lighting's incredible. Yeah. Marlon's incredible. Al Pacino's incredible. The locations are incredible. You got, oh my God. Jesus Christ. It was insane. You know, it is like when I, when I watched this movie for the first time, I didn't know the plot of the movie. So when Michael says, oh, that's not my, that's not me. I'm not involved with, with that side of the family. I don't believe him because I know Al Pacino as you know, the the devil and the devil's advocate and Tony Montana and, you know, all these like scary guys. So, but I, I believed him, you know, I, I was like, at first I was thrown off by it. But as the movie goes on, I'm like, oh, he really is just like a normal guy. And then when his father gets killed, I'm like, oh, this is, this is the turn. I'm seeing what, like the, the origin story of Al Pacino. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. You're seeing, yeah, you're seeing, that's a great way of putting it. You're seeing the origin of Al Pacino. And what's so great is, I mean, in the first part, you know, you talk about how, um, because we're seeing this film 50 years after the film was released. Actually, tomorrow, as a day of recording, is the 50th anniversary of the film, March 24th. So, but uh, having seen this film 50 years later, we're seeing it with completely different eyes than people back then did. Because you're seeing Al Pacino mm-hmm. in the role of Michael Corleone. People back then didn't know Al Pacino. So he fit perfectly. He fit even way better back in the day when you were watching this film. Now we're seeing mm-hmm. Al Pacino, Al, you know. That's just how good he is in the movie. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think, like, you know, what one of the things that the studio said was he's short. I I never actually even noticed his height. Height wasn't something I wasn't, I wasn't paying attention to. But really, something that I did notice was his height plays an advantage. You know, Al Pacino's height actually is an advantage for Michael. Because, you know, he's mm-hmm. he's towered o- he's towered over by someone like Sonny and Tom Hagens, right? People who, I mean, tallness is like, I guess, a more masculine thing, right? By like mm-hmm. society standards, you know, whatever. Um, <laughs> you you'd say that like you're short, but you're like six feet tall. No, but 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 it's but it's such a stupid <laughs> thing to attribute someone's masculinity to height, even though yeah. I've been blessed. But but <laughs> but no, but it's so stupid. And he's out here defending all the short kings out there. Hey, I'm looking out for you guys. Don't worry, <laughs> short kings. I got you, man. But what was so interesting was that I noticed is there there was they were playing some B some scenes from the movie where Sonny's standing over Mike when you can see the height difference very clearly. Uh, but when you're sitting in that chair, in the Don's chair, it doesn't matter how tall you are. You're sitting in the right. fucking chair. and It's a throne. It's a throne. And and the throne, it's not towering over people. Like, when, when Sonny's talking... Like, you said it best. When when Michael is planning the hit on Salazzo, you said that that was the moment where he really started taking charge of what the family was going to do. He was taking charge of the organized crime, right? And, I mean, yeah. Sonny's looking down on him. Right? That's when he says the line. What do you think in your Ivy League suit? You're going to get some blood. Bada bing! You know what I mean? <laughs> but, and he's actually physically looking down on Michael. But Mike, it doesn't matter how tall you are. When you're in the throne, you're on the fucking throne. And Michael looked like he was on the throne at that moment. He was talking yeah. like the dawn. And what's really interesting is you have someone who's, you know, kind of looks a little meek. Got his ass kicked by a cop. 
kind of short, shorter than his brothers, shorter than most of his family members. And yet he's the guy who's making the big decisions. It's almost like you didn't expect him to take that move. It, mm-hmm. it all just kind of comes back and it services the ultimate story is the change and transformation of Michael Corleone to being this villain. Right. And, mm-hmm. and the, the studio just saying, well, the studio, the studio blowing, blowing him off because of his height. They didn't see it as like, oh my God, this is going to work in our favor. No, they were so shallow yeah. that they said, well, no, we need a tall, we need a tall, handsome man. We need a Robert Redford. And I'm like, you are totally missing <laughs> the point God. of this character and of the story. Maybe I'm maybe I'm looking too deep into the height thing, but that was just a thought that I had. It doesn't matter how tall you are in your, when you're in a chair. Mm-hmm. I I thought that was, I thought that was such a silly note. When he's too short. Eh, fuck you. Leave the man alone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know what, what? What these guys did with the you know Francis casted this film so perfectly. Marlon Brando when he was creating the voice of Vito Corleone, he was inspired by Fra- Frank Costello, real life mobster. That was a great decision. That we wouldn't have gotten if the studio had gotten their way and gone with someone else. Mm-hmm. Um, you know who else wanted to be Vito Corleone? Gianni Russo. No, oh, no, no. Uh, oh, no, no, not, not he didn't want to be Vito. He wanted to be Sonny and Michael. Yeah. You know who wanted to be the big the big old Don? Who? Orson Welles. Orson Welles? Orson Welles wanted the part and he was saying. Not going to lie. I would like to see that audition tape. <laughs> I would too. Apparently would Francis like- said no to him. Imagine the oh balls. Oh, my God. Holy shit to say no to Orson Welles. Dude, you know what probably happened? He probably asked him, oh, can I be a writer's assistant for this movie? And Orson Welles said no. And then the revol- <laughs> the roles were reversed. I would love that. Oh, uh, that'd be a great story. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> I I have to look. I, I think Orson Welles as Vito Corleone would have been great. We, we did get Marlon and he was fantastic. But there is a part of me that does want to see that tape. <laughs> Yeah. Already the casting was a big thing, right? On top just mm-hmm. the studio demands on top of dealing with the with the Civil Rights League. Um, you know, and there was a lot of pressure to get this right because this was a big public thing. Like when they when they filmed Vito Corleone's death or when he got shot at, right? Where uh fucking Fredo fucks up. Fredo drops his gun. <laughs> Fredo Fredo drops the gun. Fredo drops the ball. Fredo drops the gun after his dad is being shot. but so it's not even like maybe it's better that he dropped the gun otherwise it would have shot him yeah (laughs) but i don't know it's it's just like oh man this guy this guy is not made for this life fredo is well fredo but but Uh, but when they filmed that scene apparently hundreds of residents were looking down watching the scene from their apartments like they were covering the streets watching this happen they had <laughs> mafiosos kind of watching the scene happen criticizing the the actor saying that's not how you hold a gun and stuff there was a lot of pressure for this movie to to be a hit mm-hmm. it was insane uh, Cam- Gam- Car- uh carlo gambino was watching it from across the street right? another another mafioso yep uh <laughs> but as the film went under as the film was under production the mafia started, and this kind of goes into what you were saying. Uh, the mafia was really starting to fall in love with Hollywood. They were like, "Hey, this Hollywood lifestyle's pretty neat," uh, and so they wanted the mafia wanted some of their own to become actors. And this, the production was like, "Well, we need extras. Like, we're gonna film a big wedding. Let's just, you know, bring some people on." And one of those oh people my God. is your boy Luca Brasi, Lenny Montana. Yup, 
and they talked about the scene where he kind of messed it up, but they turned it around, and I, I thought that was a brilliant addition, uh, and apparently a lot of the extras were people from the mafia. Well, like, a lot of people related to Francis, but also, like, uh, you know, mafiosos and stuff, and, I mean, it worked out. It made everything feel authentic. So, actually, James Caan was... He himself wasn't as big of an actor. And he started hanging around some of the mafiosos to kind of get a vibe of kind of how they walked and how they talked and stuff. Uh-huh. And the FBI was keeping a, a close watch on this entire production. And Jimmy <laughs> landed on their list. James Caan landed on the FBI's list of people to oh keep an God. eye on. Because they didn't know if he... They didn't know that he was an actor. They thought that he was like a ro- rising mob guy. And Jesus. I'm just like, boy, quit that shit. You're going to get yourself in trouble. <laughs> and even, and oh man, what, what did they say? I think they were like, if James, if he, if James could be an actor or a made man, that he would have wanted to be a made man. I think that's what someone said. I forgot. Mm-hmm. He wanted to be in the mafia really badly. Apparently, uh, James Caan and Gianni Russo did not get along. Oh, they didn't? In there's like this interview, like an hour and a half interview with him on this uh, uh, value valuetainment. This YouTube channel called Valuetainment, and there's like an hour and a half interview with Johnny Russo about his uh, his life, and he he talks about James Con, and he's like, "Oh, I hate James Con. That guy's a rat." <laughs> this is like in 2019. Oh my god. <laughs> And he, he also has a story about Marlon Brando, how he like threatened Marlon Brando because Marlon Brando did not like him on the set. And it's like you can listen to this guy talk and be like, man, this guy has lived a really interesting life. How much of this is actually true? I don't know. Man. He's, he's he like he has a story about how Marlon Brando's like, who are you? Why are you here? So then he pulls him. Johnny Russo pulls him aside and says, don't you mess this up for me? And then. Marlon Brando's like, man, this guy's a good actor. Okay. And then Johnny Russo says, yeah. And then I couldn't get rid of him. He just wanted to hang around me all day. Okay. I read that story too. Look, I don't know. (laughs) I mean, some of it could be, you know, I mean, some of it could be made up of, you know, fuck it. The film's 50 years old. Just, you know, let him, let him be. Yeah. It's, it's, he tells a story like it actually happened, but he kind of tells it like a movie character too. So it's like. Even if you don't believe it, it's like it's kind of entertaining watch hearing him talk. Yeah, agreed. Um, yeah, so I mean, the the movie was going pretty. The, the production of it was going, you know. I'm, I mean, outside of some some of the drama and stuff, you know, but it seemed like things were going well. But your boy Joe Colombo, his head started to grow because <laughs> because he was he was he was like, oh, this Hollywood shit's tight, like you know, it's. Oh man, this is so cool! And they're asking me questions, and oh, I made this whole deal happen. Like I made this happen. The other mafiosos were not were not here for it. They were like, "This is not a good thing." All right, like you're drawing way too much unnecessary attention for us. Like you need to like, and I guess it's one of those things where like you need to talk to you need to talk to him, and you need to tell him to calm his ass down. But Columbo was like, nah, man, I'm hot shit right now. I made this deal happen. Look at all these big movie stars. We're hanging out with Marlon Brando. Frank Costello's showing up, giving his seal of approval. And I so on June 28th, 1971, right, this was the second Italian-American civil rights rally. And Al Ruddy was going to be the guest of honor, right? Um, Al got a call. Person on the line said, don't go. And, oh my god and this is during the final days of filming for the godfather 
right? Remember, so while this was happening, while this rally was happening, they were filming the revolving door assassination. Do you remember? That's when they start killing the five members of the family. On the other side of the city, at the rally, Joe Colombo gets shot three times. Three times in the head. Jesus Christ. What the fuck? As they're filming <laughs> oh the assassination God. of one of the family Don, one of the family's Don, this guy Columbo gets killed or gets shot, not killed. Yeah, uh, he, he survives three shots to the head. And his bodyguards immediately gun down the assassin, killing him. But uh Columbo is paralyzed for the last seven years of his life. He's in a coma. And they're going to have some organs playing. I don't, I, don't, I don't think they'll go that far. But they're definitely going to intercut the two scenes of them filming the mafioso dying and then Columbo getting shot. Uh, and that essentially... So Columbo getting shot, right? The attempted assassination slash actual assassination since he died seven years later. Well, and then I'm sure that they, the Italian-American Civil Rights League kind of stopped doing oh, stuff. Because their Wikipedia article kind of ends there. Oh, they ended <laughs> It was gone. <laughs> they, they, they did not exist. In fact, this launched a real war between the families. Like, mm. in the film, this launched a full-scale war. There were people shooting. There, there was assassination attempts. It was, it, was, it was crazy. And this was towards the end of the filming of the film. So, eventually, the filmmakers got out of there while this war was happening. I'm not too sure what happens with the war, um, you know. I guess the Dons came together. It's like, I forgive you or whatever, some shit like that. Um, <laughs> and they, you know, they edit the film and, you know, they Paramount, I think before they even like finished editing the film, I think they greenlit a sequel cause they were really liking what they saw and you know, the film was released. Um, they had a big old premiere. Al uh, Reddy was talking about how he and, uh, how him and uh, Betty would drive around the city and see at look at the long queues for movie theaters it was it was pretty great you know it's after all the troubles that they went through seeing the film actually finish was a sight for sore eyes mm-hmm. however the mafia was insulted that they weren't invited to the premiere <laughs> oh no yeah they were like we oh, want to no. we want to be at the premiere and they were like we can't so paramount actually set up a different premiere for the mafiosos <laughs> you know and the fun, the, the weird, funny slash sad thing was, um, the film was so popular. It was the second highest grossing film of the year, and the mafiosos started copying things from the film. They started mimicking the film, like kissing the ring. Oh yeah. my god! That was like a thing that I don't know how prominent it was in the seventies for the mafia to do that, but they started doing it. Like, you know how the men are not, like, a bit more affectionate? Like, they'll hug each other, you know? Like, they'll kiss mm-hmm. each other on the cheeks or stuff like that, you know? I guess mafiosos started doing that. They started, like, wow. kind of mimicking the film and started quoting it. And, I mean, heck, the Mo Green thing. That dude got Mo Greened. You know, Luca Brasi that... swimming with the... F- or... I'm sorry? The the Mo Green effect, or the Mo Green treatment, I think that became a cinema trope. I don't... Did they actually start shooting people through the eyes? I, I I never read that officially, but I'm pretty sure. I mean, come on, man, that's a that's a pretty wild kill. But they but they started but like they started referencing lines from the film, you know, the whole "I'm gonna make an offer you can't refuse," you know, take the cannoli, <laughs> like stuff like that. You know what I mean? They really mm-hmm. loved the film, and Francis, in a way, kind of uh, he didn't like that. You know, he was offended. Yeah, I heard I heard that they um, it. Made some of them felt like it legitimized their lifestyle. Yes, because I think this was 
part of what makes this movie so different from other mob movies is that we're seeing these characters as humans first. Mm -hmm. You know, we're not seeing them as just these one-dimensional, vile, violent people. Yeah. They care about each other. Yeah. You know, there's they do it for the family, even though the family is the business. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, it, I mean, it was... I get where he's coming from. Like... I get where he's coming from. He, you know, he felt like he felt like the mafia had hijacked his film for themselves, that it legitimized their life, that it kind of made it seem glorious and stuff. And I mean, he was like, that's not the case. This is a violent film, right? Like mm -hmm. a lot of people die. No one's particularly happy at the end. No, even but his he, marriage he is already it, you could already tell that there's going to be a rocky relationship between him and Kay, mm -hmm. right? I mean, yeah. another film that comes to mind that kind of went through the similar thing was God, God, uh, God, Goodfellas, right? Where people were looking at that. It was like, it, you know, it heightened the, the gang life. It was it celebrated. All my life, I wanted to be a gangster. And it is about a character who wants to be a gangster. And at the end, he doesn't regret his time. And I guess people felt that, oh my God, it legitimizes the film. It legitimizes the gangs and stuff. And... I, I don't know how Marty feels about that, but it for Francis, it definitely uh, bothered him. He resented how much they liked the film and didn't understand what he was trying to get at. Which one of the things that he said that I kind of liked was, you know, the, the film's about family. It's a tragedy. You know, it's about a guy mm -hmm. who is about a king who has three sons and he has to decide which one of his sons is going to, you know, follow him and be the next king. But he also said that it was a tragedy about America. Right. That might yeah. go in a way represented America. And by the end of the, you know, kind of like his kind of how he uh, changed. Right. He became distrustful of everyone. He came he became self-righteous. He was paranoid. Right. He was a hypocrite. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, he was studied at one of the best universities, some Ivy League. You know, he his dad said, hey, he's the son of an immigrant first generation. And he was like, I he, want... He did all the things you're supposed to do. Yeah, and his dad said, you're going to make us legitimate. You're going to be Senator Corleone. What, what was the other... He said, Senator Cor Corleone, Congressman Corleone, President Corleone. That's not going to happen anymore, right? It is a tragedy. And I think the mafia just kind of looked at the surface level things that were cool about the film, right? Yeah. But they just, you know, they just they got the wrong messaging. It reminded me a lot of, like, uh, how people have co-opted Fight Club. In a weird way, you know? Yeah. We, we, I mean, we, we've mentioned Fight Club, and I think it's an important film to talk about. But it's like, you know, people look at that and they reference, you don't talk about Fight Club. You know, they reference Tyler Durden, and they don't realize, like... He's the bad guy. This dude's a terrorist. <laughs> like, that's a hill that I'm going to die on. Fight Club is about terrorism. I'm, mm. I'm going to die on this fucking hill. I can't wait to talk about Fight Club. Because that scene where all the dudes that's are... breaking the rules. What? Talking about Fight Club. Oh, Fine. I'm sorry, but uh, I yeah, I, I was I was like, uh, like this is a very disturbing film. Like it's not meant to glor it's not meant to be glorified, but you know, yeah, I, I, but I think that it does portray them as sympath sympathetically, which oh, I think absolutely. A, yes. a movie should do. Like yeah. one dimensional villains that are just there to like be vile and violent. Like I don't care about them. Like I can I can sympathize with you, but not. Uh, condone your actions, which I think is something that people miss when they watch movies like this. Like just because it's in the movie is not, you know, like an approval of the character's actions. You know, there we see these characters do bad things, but I think you know if if you're watching the movie the right way, you understand 
that this is not a good thing that they're doing. Does that make sense? Austin, I could not agree more. Just because a character is doing it and you feel sympathetic to him does not mean that it's a validation of what they're doing. I love Sonny. I love Michael and I love Tom Hagen's. But these guys are criminals and their actions are getting a lot of people killed. A lot of innocent people potentially are getting killed in this movie. And mm-hmm. I like I like all three characters and I'm engaged with them. But just because I like them doesn't mean I approve of what they're doing, especially in if it happened, if it was happening in real life. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But again, it, it's a tricky balance because if you have a character that's really likable, audiences are willing to forgive what they do. I mean, I we've mentioned this in the first part, fucking Heisenberg, right? Yeah. He's a, he's a nice chemistry teacher in the beginning and he does some vile shit. And I still like him by the end. I wanted him to succeed at the end. I mean, spoilers if you haven't seen Breaking Bad. But, you know, when he kills all the Nazis at the end, I was cool with that, right? Mm-hmm. And he does a lot of fucked up things. I still wanted him to succeed. But on the other half, I'm like, eh, he's not supposed to be a hero. Yeah, <laughs> this is not. But I think some people see characters like that and they're like, yes, I want to be like that. I want to be, what's his name? Um, it's not Martin Sheen. Who was in Falling Down? Michael Douglas. I want to be Michael Douglas in Falling Down. Yeah, he's not the good guy of that movie. I want to be sorry to tell you. I want to be Tyler Durden from Fight Club, the anarchist. <laughs> uh, yeah, it doesn't. Oh, I want to be Scarface. Scarface is so yeah. ridiculous. Oh my god, Scarface and, is cool, man. It does hit this like um, this like frustration of like your life not being where you want it to be, and you just want to like quit your job and and do do stuff I'm like yeah okay but then he, they're murdering people <laughs> yeah and with tyler <laughs> durden like having someone up. he he just wants to be outside the grid he's tired of how things are he's he feels like his life is boring that it's being determined by forces outside of him and, and then he creates a cult where he controls these people and warps their minds and, to do what he wants them to do and i could feel sympathetic to those characters <laughs> right but on the other hand you have to realize it's a fucking terrorist group. <laughs> I mean, the shit that... that oh, I, I cannot wait until we talk about that movie. Oh, I'll talk about it then. Yeah. Well, right now? No. Yeah, well, well then. Eventually. We'll do it. But I mean, yeah, I mean, that's... You know, um, am I surprised that that happened? No, that the mafiosos found this movie really endearing? Not really. Um, but hey, that's... I mean, you, you know, when you make a film or something, you run the risk of people misinterpreting your work or your work just not fulfilled not going through with the promise that it's set out to make you know you can make the argument for either i think people misinterpreted this film especially mafias but you know that's why we do this right Mm -hmm. it's looking back at this stuff so there was just some some quick notes something that i thought some things that were really interesting that uh, martin brando used the kleenex for his screen test uh during the screen test uh lucas George Lucas's wife at the time, who was an editor, was actually editing the uh, screen test footage together. And, you know, I mean, the whole the whole thing about who was going to be Michael, you know, when Francis asked her, who do you think should be Michael, right? He still wanted out Pacino, but the studio wanted everything. He just wanted confirmation. Marsha Lucas said that she thought I would be great because she said uh, he it lo- it's almost like he undresses you with his eyes. And, <laughs> and I was like... <laughs> kind of work like I, that kind of a good way of describing like a little bit you know like his interaction with k mm-hmm. early on you know what i mean 
I yeah. just thought that was really funny. Shout out to Marsha Lucas, who does not is not given the credit that she deserves because she's a she's a great editor. Yeah, Star Wars would not be Star Wars without Marsha Lucas. Here, here, for reals. Um, and nobody talks about that. So, uh, Robert De Niro was screened for Sunny. Uh, Jack Waltz's line, right where he where he says Johnny Fontaine is not gonna be in this film, was literally copied from a studio exec who said that to. <laughs> Who said that to Francis over Marlon Brando? Marlon Brando will not be in a Paramount Studio picture film. Whatever, whatever Jack Wolf <laughs> said, right? Yeah. And Francis literally just took that line and put it in the film, which is funny because you said that you know a lot of directors love to put evil executives in their film, yeah. and that's what Francis did. <laughs> um, I love that. Yeah, I, I, those are just a few of the things that I thought was really interesting from some of the behind-the-scenes stuff. Uh, there's so many mm-hmm. b- cool behind-the-scenes stories about this. But fundamentally, this movie was a pain in the ass to make. Because oh, yeah. from the and studio it, heads to the mafia to fucking... Uh, ideas, you know, it's all over the place. Mm-hmm. Um, what were you going to say? But it was, it was very, very, very successful. And I think what made it so different from movies before was that it took these characters that are traditionally treated as like one dimensional villains and it portrayed them as sympathetic characters whose actions we can understand. And at some points we can even root for them, even though they're doing bad things. And maybe it is kind of a, a tragedy, you know, we're not really supposed to root for them. We can understand that their actions are taking them on a, a darker path, but it's not like beating you over the head with, Look at how bad this guy is. Look at how far he's come. You know, it like it's more subtle and artistic. It's different from the mob movies before. And it's success. Wild success in a in a very dark period of of uh theater theater of the movie making business. Movies were not making as much money as they were. This movie was. Mm-hmm. And these people involved, Coppola, Spiel well, Stuart wasn't involved directly in this, but Lucas, um, you know, the Paramount would go on to, didn't they also make uh, Jaws? Uh, no, that was Universal. Oh, God damn it. Well, this article that I found on, uh, okay, this article I found on NPR talks about how this movie made $100 million faster than any film before it. And it only costs like less than seven million to make. It quadrupled the stock price of Gulf and Western from seventy-seven cents a share to three thirty a share. Uh, this movie, it kind of maybe it might be a sensational thing to say or like a really fancy way to end an article, but it says that it kind of brought movies back from the brink of death. Because right after that, three years later, you have you have a uh, jaws come out which you know started the whole blockbuster thing and then two years after that you have star wars like it makes it it makes it seem like this movie was kind of like the first one to like really bring movies back into the mainstream absolutely it's interesting because i feel like this happens every so often this this happens i mean this happens pretty often where like hollywood will have a big era where they're great and people want to go to the movies and stuff and people are like and then afterwards, like, people, oh, movies are dying. Movies aren't the same, yada, yada, yada. And I mean, um, it's, like a, it's like a cycle. It comes back. 
and it's coming back right now. You know, I feel like studios didn't know what audiences wanted. Then we have superhero films, and now audiences are coming back in full force to movie theaters during a pandemic to watch Spider-Man and Batman kick ass. Which is not a bad thing. I mean, that's, that's what audiences want. That's what's it's, not, it's not a bad thing, but, but there, it does make it harder to, like, start your own thing. Like, how do you... What's going to be, like, the next young filmmaker taking on this non, like, super franchise thing? You know, because The Godfather wasn't a huge franchise. Like, it was a bestseller. Yeah. But it wasn't... It was an IP that everybody was familiar with. Mm-hmm. Here's the thing that um, kind of made me realize a little bit, you know, going back to this whole um, Marvel movies aren't cinema thing, right? Uh, for those of you who don't know, Mar- Martin Scorsese said that Marvel films aren't cinema, that there's something else, right? That there is something closer to theme park rides and stuff, right? And I think th- I think he's half right, half wrong. Uh, mm-hmm. We're not. This isn't that podcast where we break that down, right? But I think what he's saying is that there's a sort of cinema that's grounded in like bravery in realness Mm -hmm. um that maybe some of these films are becoming a little bit too formulaic in their approach that they are they are really theme park rides which is i mean it's not a i don't think it's a diss it's just kind of acknowledging something that's there watching the making of this film i mean even couple of said it they didn't rely on car crashes or big shootouts and stuff they were really relying on the story and it took a lot of bravery to make this film because the filmmakers had to fight a lot to get the decisions that they wanted they didn't like fall over everything the studio demanded, you know, the studios mm-hmm. and the location and the ass and the cast and stuff like that. And I look at kind of what Marvel's done and I'm sure Marvel takes a lot of chances and stuff, but also like in the end of the day, like how many of those brave choices are Marvel studios like Marvel making? I don't know. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, there's almost like, it's like an act of bravery or like, um, like they're willing to take, like the studios back then were willing to take a chance. Even if they didn't want to, if they were disgruntled about it, they took it. Nowadays, it's very much yeah. like you have to, there's a certain formula you have to go by and, you know, we don't want to do this yeah, and we don't want to do that. Is. One of the one of the quotes that Todd Phillips said when he was pitching Joker, the 2019 one with Joaquin Phoenix, was that he pitched this story and one of the execs at Warner's said, we have, we sell pajamas with this guy's face on it. This can't be rated <laughs> R. And my thought to that is, oh, so now that's how we decide how films get made. Because of fucking yep. pajamas. Yep. And I thought that was a ridiculous statement. And, you know. Yeah, that movie broke a billion. Yeah. R-rated film that broke a billion. It, it's, it's one of the most profitable films of all time. More profitable than Endgame. Believe it or not. Like, Endgame made more money. But they also spent a lot more money. Mm-hmm. Joker did not it's... spend nearly as much. And it was more profitable. It, I think it's one of the most profitable R-rated films of all time. Granted, it's yeah. still tied with superhero character. but And, and like, I, it's not my favorite movie. I'll say that. Like, I think it's 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 all right. I have a lot of beef with it, but I do appreciate how it was not trying to fit this mold of like, let's sell, let's paint this guy in a certain way so we can sell more merchandise. Oh, absolutely. You know what I, I mean? I agree with you 100%. Uh, I, I wasn't crazy about Joker either. Fuck, I respect the hell out of it. Absolutely. So yeah, I don't know. Just, just seeing kind of the filmmakers talk about it and reading this story about the making of, just like, oh, like films were made very differently back then. Probably for the better or oh, worse, yeah. but there was a different style and there was a different approach that you had to take with making films back then that really isn't around anymore, you know? It's and, not around as, as much. I think that yeah. there are some like really interesting films coming out that are taking a lot of chances. Like with all the stuff that's coming out from A24 studio, 
like there's a lot of weird stuff that's coming out there that like makes me excited to to see a movie that takes me to another place. I'll still watch the the freaking superhero movies, you know. Yeah, but. no, I'm not. Nobody is saying that they're bad or anything. Like, I love those movies, man. I'm there. Yeah. Like, I was there day one for Spider Man: No Way Home and Batman. Like, I am not talking shit, but I would like it if someone tried to make another Godfather. Scorsese mm-hmm. did, and he made The Irishman, but not that many people saw that in theaters. I don't even think most people have finished that movie. <laughs> I have not even started it. I'm sorry. No, no, no. It, I'm sorry, no, no, Marty. No, no. But it's not. But but here's the difference, though. I know that you are busy because and you watch a lot of stuff like hell. We have a podcast where we're watching movies that sometimes we've never seen before. I, I get that. But there's I think a lot of people are like, well, you know, it's eh, I don't want to watch it. It seems boring or aren't even willing to give it a chance. And I'm like, well, you know, unless it's a superhero film, they don't want to see it. And that that saddens me a bit. You know, I'm not going to mm-hmm. I'm not going to criticize. It does make me a little sad. Yeah, I think it would be pretty cool if we do get a superhero movie that does take these like weird artistic choices where it's like, yo, why are we seeing Spider-Man kill people? You know what I mean? Or something, something weird. Maybe not Spider-Man kill people, but do something that may or may not threaten the marketability of that character. But it, for the sake of telling a story, like there's that Hawkeye show that was coming out. Uh, I didn't watch it, but if Yelena doesn't kill Hawkeye at the end of that episode, or at the end of that show, what's the point? You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. What's the fucking point? Yeah. You know, some some change, some big changes and stuff. But I mean, look, it, clearly it's working. It's for working them. for them. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. I, I don't, um, uh, I don't mind it. It's, it's it'll, be, it'll work for them until it doesn't work for them. Exactly. Which is the the cycle of of how these things go. Like the studio has this much con- so much control. It determines how movies are made, and then people stop going to the movies, and then they're like, oh shit, what do we do? Uh, 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 uh. and then something like the godfather comes along and it's like okay let's do this and now we're back where we were i don't know i just i thought i thought it was just an interesting thought that i had kind of researching this film and kind of seeing how they talked about it in the making of and you know and that scorsese thing there's a lot to unpack there and i have some opinions but we'll save it for later right now it's just the godfather the one last mm-hmm. thing that i wanted to touch on real quick because it's coming up pretty soon uh as of the time of this recording or th- when this episode comes out the oscars will be airing which I'm excited about because we've got a lot of good films, I think. Uh, however, there is something pretty infamous that happened at the year at in the year of that this film was like the Oscars for that went. Fuck it, the the year that the Oscar came. I can't even talk. The year that this okay. film was released, the film. God damn it! I can't. The wait. Oscar the Oscar season for this movie was interesting because this movie had eleven nominations. <laughs> eleven nominations. Yep. It won a ton. Some of the people nominated were not happy about it. One of the guys being Marlon Brando. I don't know if he was happy about it or if he was upset or, but he did not show up. He did not go to the Oscars and he won. He won for the role of Don Vito Corleone and he was not there to accept it. In fact, he sent someone else uh, to pick up, to pick up his, uh, his Oscar. Her name was Sashin Littlefeather. I'm, I'm probably messing up her name, but uh, Native American woman, Sashin L- Littlefeather. She was sent by Marlon Brando to receive his award if he had won. And she she rejected the Oscar and she gave a speech about um, the film industry's misrepresenta- re- misrepresentation of Native Americans and kind of how 
they had a negative effect in the culture and kind of their Native Americans representation. And people were half the crowd was cheering and the other half were booing at her. Really infamous yeah. moment. Yeah. Imagine mm -hmm. that. Accepting the award for Marlon Brando and the Godfather, Miss Shashin Littlefeather. Hello, my name is Sashin Littlefeather. I'm Apache and I'm president of the National Native American Affirmative Image Committee. I'm representing Marlon Brando this evening and he has asked me to tell you in a very long speech, which I cannot share with you presently because of time, but I will be glad to share with the press afterwards that he very regretfully cannot accept this very generous award. And the reasons for this being are the treatment of American Indians today by the film industry, excuse me, and on television in movie reruns, and also with recent happenings at Wounded Knee. I beg at this time that I have not intruded upon this evening and that we will in the future our hearts and our understandings will meet with love and generosity thank you on behalf of Marlon Brando fucking insane in 90 in 73 49 years ago a native american woman being booed at the oscars for just saying hey your repre your representation of us is kind of fucked up wild yeah, and, and I'm sure people were like, well, the Oscars isn't the place to say this. But, like, at the time, people watched the Oscars. Yeah. It's one of, like, the most popular televised events. It was huge. Like, when when do Native Americans ever get that kind of platform? That's what Marlon Brando said when they, when he was asked about it. Why'd you do it? He's like, they barely get any speaking roles, roles in films. When when the fuck do we pay attention to them? He didn't say fuck, but, you and know. And half, half the time, they're they're... In movies, they're not played by actual Native Americans. Yeah, and when they are, they are the they are savages, the rapists, murderers. It's like what the fuck, dude? They've got no no positive representation. And and Marlon was a he was a huge activist for that. I mean, he was talking about black representation in film. He was talking about uh, you know Native Americans, and that was a ballsy move for him to to send the little feather in in his mm -hmm. place and. I mean, good on her for finishing that speech because, man, you were in front of some of the most powerful people in the industry and you're basically saying, fuck you. That's wild. I rewatched the, the speech and it is very difficult to watch because um, you just kind of feel a little nervous for her and it's like cringy. Yeah. Like it was just, it's kind of uncomfortable. I recommend people watching it because, man, the Oscars have changed in the past 40, 50 years. Oh, um, yeah. They're like, okay, we need to, we need to fix some things. <laughs> And I, I also believe uh, Al, Al Pacino was upset that he was nominated for Best Supporting Actor. Instead of because, Actor? <laughs> instead of Best Actor. <laughs> even though he... Damn. even Fuck. What the fuck? I mean, goddamn, dude. It, look, I love the Oscars, but sometimes they're just full of bullshit. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah. I just... Yeah, I, I love the Oscars. I feel like it's the only award show that has any or it has like the most um credibility but even then it's like it's very political yes in terms of how much money the studio puts forward to for this nominee for the campaign because 
yeah, so like the more money you put into the campaign, the better chance you have at your candidate winning, which is like, well, it, it, it can't be about money, right? Like money for a campaign. Why can't we judge it based off of their performances? Off the merit. But yeah, it's 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 kind of uh, frustrating. But I feel like I feel like most of the time I'm like, yes, you deserve that Oscar. Yeah, I feel the truth is a lot of people do deserve Oscars. Oh, yeah. It's I mean, it, look, number one. Awards for movies is inherently silly or awards for anything artistic is silly because how do you actually say objectively say that this movie is better than the other? You really can't. It's all based off of opinion. And again, a lot of these movies are good. Like uh, if you watch, go through the list of movies that are uh, nominated for best picture or something. They are good. Right. You'll always have like an outlier. that's yeah. like, ah, should that have been there? But but even Crash. then, the people, <laughs> the people worked hard on that film and it was well received by a lot of people. So, hey, like, you know, even when a bad movie wins an award or some or someone that I don't agree with, I'm like, it's still a lot. They, they, they at least recognize a lot of the films that I did love. Maybe this person yeah. should have won it. But f- fuck it, man. Yeah, you know, those nominations are like these are some. You're going to find, like, at least three good movies there. Oh, absolutely, man. And there's a lot of... And they award, like, makeup artists and editing and stuff. This year, they're not broadcasting Mm -hmm. it. But, like, I mean, they're giving credit to a lot of the people behind the scenes who are working on some of your favorite films who don't get invited to Jimmy Fallon or Jimmy Kimmel or they they don't have, like, Vanity Fair articles written about them. It's, like, the, the, the hairdressers... The, the costume people for The Godfather, the screenwriter, the editor, the, the composer, that musical theme is incredible. And that was made by Francis Ford Coppola's father. Yeah, and music is so, so important to movies. Could you imagine Star Wars without John Williams? Exactly. How the fuck would anyone have known John Williams if he wasn't constantly being recognized by the Academy or something? Do you know what I mean? Or yeah. for his work in Star Wars. It's it, it, And look, again... If you don't like the Oscars, fine. I'm not gonna. I'm not here to change your mind. But I personally like them, and I think mm-hmm. there's a lot of validity to what they do. But being being called out, being called out was was the right thing. And you know, good on Marlon and good on little 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 feather to do that. If you guys haven't seen the clip, I'd recommend watching it because yeah, 50 years have changed a lot. I mean, not in some other parts, but at least at the Oscars. Yeah, they wouldn't they wouldn't boo uh, someone making that speech today. But we aren't treating Native Americans that much better, or. or yeah. eh, they're, 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 they're not getting as there, much attention still. There are shows that have them playing parts that that were written for them by them. I think the Reservation Dogs is what I think of. Mm-hmm. I don't know if there's any more. Um, yeah, so could we be doing better? Absolutely. But at least we're not booing at a Native American woman on stage. Thank God. Yeah. So, all right. Yeah. Man, I, this is long ass episode. Uh, was, e- e- I hope it was entertaining, though. It was a very entertaining conversation because I got to learn a lot about the behind the scenes stuff from you. I appreciate you doing all that that research. Nah, man. Thank the people who put this together because they had to go through all these different things. It's insane. (laughs) But it's a great story. It was fun to talk about. And sometimes talking about the making of a movie is more fun than the actual movie. I like talking about Godfather, but this this is a very entertaining story. Oh, yeah. It's always like I feel like people like judge movies in like a kind of backwards way like hearing some of those like especially on twitter like seeing some of the criticism people have for certain movies is like what is wrong with you you're just trying to make people mad yeah you're just trying to like you know get your little hot take out there get clicks get engagement and it's like oh, i hate that you know i mean sometimes I hate it so much people will have 
people will have some hot takes that they actually believe in. And then there are some where it's like, all right, you're just trying to stir the, the pot. Uh, Star Wars Last Jedi is one. Yeah, it's so disingenuous and I, I don't I don't like it. So like when we talk about movies here, I want to like really give them like a, a fair shake and try to like be be honest and authentic and yeah. really dig into them absolutely so. absolutely and that's why i'm very proud of the work that we've done on the podcast i i think so i've i'm glad that we've made a podcast that we we would actually like to listen to yeah yeah i and, think and, right? and i think it's just like you know talk about criticism like look man well we always have the best arguments for why certain films are good probably not but at least we're honest and it's like look man i, I just like the thing I, maybe i can't explain it but i just like it um we try our best and i think we succeed a lot of the time and I think it's entertaining. Mm-hmm. Oh, it, yeah. it, it entertains me at least, goddammit. Oh, yeah. It's, Bada it's, it makes me love makes me love movies again. Oh, yeah. And I've seen so many movies through this podcast that I'm like, shit, this is a banger. <laughs> Little shop. Oh, um, yeah. okay. All right. So, so let's move on to our quotes. Yes. Um, I'll go first. Okay. I have two quotes, as always. As always. As always. Uh, one of them is by Jack Waltz. I love this quote. It's so <laughs> funny and dumb. I love it. I died listening to this line right and it's jack Gold's explaining why he's not hiring johnny fontaine he's not casting johnny fontaine on the in his upcoming picture and because johnny ran away with some girl that jack waltz was hooking up with and jack waltz says she was beautiful she was young she was innocent she was the greatest piece of ass i've ever had and i've had them all <laughs> over the world oh my god i die every time he says that it's and you know you in know, a weird you way know it, someone said that huh you know someone said that oh, about somebody. Absolutely. And it's funny because in a weird kind of fucked up way, I do kind of feel that way about this movie. You know, like, like I don't know. Like, I've seen a lot of movies all over the world, but this one just stands out. Again, fucked up, <laughs> but, you know, eh, kind of okay. fun. And my second quote is actually from Michael. And I thought it was just a cold line, cold lie to say. It was badass, and it just stood out for me. It was uh, only, when he's confronting Carlos, and he's like, "Only don't tell me you're innocent, because it insults my intelligence, and it makes me very angry." And <laughs> I like because number one, that's a badass line to say to someone. That's a badass thing to say to some motherfucker who's beating the shit out of your sister and fucking ratted you out. Number two. It kind of just, I picture myself saying that to like a really bad movie. Don't tell me that you're intelligent. Don't tell me you're a smart movie. It insults my intelligence and it makes me angry. Mm-hmm. So it kind of works in both ways. So those are my two quotes. I, I love them. They're great. One makes me laugh. The other one makes me shiver in fear. In fear. Um, my quote is pretty basic, uh, but I feel like it's just, it, it represents the way I feel about the movie. The the theme in the movie, I think, as well. Um it's when Michael's coming up with the plan to kill Captain Captain Lukletsky and <laughs> Salazzo. Uh, and he says, it's not personal. It's strictly business. Okay. Which is, which is like, okay, you're lying, dude. This is personal. This is so personal. You, your dad was killed by these guys. And you're, you want revenge. And you want to kill both of them. It's like ruthless efficiency revenge. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And... I think a lot of people will, you know, um, when you make a movie, right, it's it's your job, right? But there was definitely something personal in this, you know? Mm-hmm. When, they, when they make that Jack Wolf guy so ridiculously over the top, that comes from reality. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, that comes from a real place, real words that were heard by the people making this movie. Mm-hmm. 
and when and these these performances, right? There's Marlon Brown's performance is extraordinary. There's something personal in all the things that 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 people did in this movie. You know, so I think that that like it's it's business, it's not personal is is a lie. Anytime somebody says that it's a lie because it is personal. Mm-hmm. That's what makes it so powerful. Shit. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. That makes a lot of sense. This whole movie was personal, you know? Mm. It was personal for a lot of people. Some people took it way too personally. <laughs> yeah. So I like that. I like that a lot. It's a pretty basic quote, but I but it fits. It, it is a basic it, quote. But, but it fits. It fit. I mean, mine's is kind of basic too. Uh, not the Jack Wolf's one, the Michael. There's a lot of... This movie's very quotable. Very quotable. So great episode. Great movie. It, look, I can't say this enough. Go watch the fucking thing if you haven't seen it. Just go do it. It's like $3.99 on Amazon Prime for a rental. Just watch it. Educate yourself. All right? <laughs> and I know what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be watching The Offer on Paramount TV+. Plus. That's not an ad or anything. But, but I wish we were, we were sponsored by Paramount TV+. Plus. Oh, man. I'd be fucking promoting the heck out of this show. Just because I want to see I mean, all that happen. <laughs> and I am waiting to see them intercut between the, the shooting of Columbo and the shooting of the scene where the fine family members die. I just... Oh, oh yeah. it's If they don't do it, I'm going to be upset. <laughs> yeah. Um, so uh, that's all we have for this episode. We're going to be coming out with another episode next week on a Sofia Coppola movie. Lost in Translation. Yes, sir. With, uh, Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson and also a film under the American Zoetrope uh, production company that The Godfather helped fund. So it's all coming full circle. <laughs> um, also on our next episode, we might talk a little bit more about our Patreon coming up. It is in the works. We're coming up with ideas on what to like actually put there. One of them being the modern grade uh, episode format where we talk about a more contemporary movie and our reactions to that. In case you like hearing us talk. Um, but until then, you can find up find out more about us, what we're doing on social media. We are at retrograde underscore pod on Instagram and Twitter. We have a YouTube channel, Retrograde Podcast, on and we have Facebook, but I I don't like Facebook, alright? It's it's so slow. I don't <laughs> I, I, I don't like it. Instagram and Facebook are the same thing, basically, right? But Instagram is prettier. So, but you can listen to podcasts on Facebook. So if that's your thing, we're there. You know, it's all automatic now. (laughs) I haven't logged into that Facebook in a long time. That's okay. All right. So until then, we'll see you in one week. Bye-bye.